You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. be picking up in the second installment of our Life of David series. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18 together this morning. If you want to go ahead and grab a Bible and turn there, we're going to do a little bit of setup work before we get in. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there's some located underneath the seats in front of you or behind you, uh, and uh, you can always flip there on your phone or whatever your preferred method of Bible reading is. Uh, Today, we are going to talk about something that God does for David, Uh, something that God provides for him without which, humanly speaking, David may not have made it. Something that God brings into David's life at a very, very pivotal time. During that time in his life where he's in that in-between stage of being anointed by Samuel to be the future king, but having not yet actually received the throne. A time when his life is in near constant danger from a deranged king, and when he is going through all kinds of internal turmoil because he knows what God has said, but he doesn't see it happening. Inner turmoil where he's wondering, when is God going to deliver? When is God going to come through on all of these promises? It's something that God brings to David to preserve him, to encourage him, and to help him physically, psychologically, and even emotionally. It's something that we may be prone to overlook, something that we might be prone to dismiss, but something that is absolutely critical, not just for David, but for you and I as well. God brings David a friend. God brings David a friend, specifically a friend named Jonathan. And my goal this morning is pretty simple. What I want to do is I want to share with us the story of David and Jonathan. And there's a lot to it in the books of Samuel, but we're just going to kind of hit the highlights. But I want to share with us the story of David and Jonathan and then draw out for us what I believe are some of the implications for our lives and how we relate to one another as well. And so we're going to pick up uh, towards the tail end of chapter 17. Quick context for where we are. David is an unlikely shepherd boy who has been anointed the future king of Israel. After his anointing, he goes back to the pasture where he came from, and he begins to wait on God to elevate him. His rise to fame comes when Israel is stuck in a battle with their enemy, the Philistines. The Philistines send out their best warrior, a guy you're probably familiar with, a guy named Goliath, to represent them in a one-on-one winner-take-all combat situation, all right? And basically, everyone is scared. Everyone in the nation of Israel is scared. The king is scared. The military is scared. Everybody is scared, but David shows up to bring his older brother some food and says, essentially, why are you guys freaking out? What's the big deal? This guy might be tall, but he's opposing God's people. And if he's opposing God's people, then he is opposing God himself. And if y'all aren't going to do anything about it, I'm going to go out there and take care of this myself. And you're probably real familiar with that story. He takes some rocks and a sling, and he goes out and he puts an end to the big guy. And we pick up at the tail end of 1 Samuel 17 and verse 55. Let's read it together. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand, which just a quick note, that's really awesome, right? Like David shows up in front of the king and he's like, hey, Saul, I would shake your hand, but it's kind of full right now with Goliath's head. It's pretty bad to the bone. Uh, Verse 58, and Saul said to him, 
whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Chapter 18, verse 1. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. All right, so at this point, Jonathan, Saul's son, who is apparently with them when all this is going down, he sees something in this David guy through this whole Goliath ordeal. I've heard some people try to say that this mean, that means that Jonathan had some sort of romantic interest in David, and honestly, I think that's pretty silly. Uh, I think that says more about how hypersexualized and uncomfortable with male intimacy our own culture is than the culture of the first, I mean, a culture of the ancient Israelite world. Uh, but nonetheless, there's... Uh, there's more going on here than that. We know from previous chapters that Jonathan was also pr a pretty accomplished warrior in his own right. Previously, he, had one other so he and one other soldier went out in faith, like David did with Goliath, on a covert mission and took out a whole platoon of Philistine soldiers completely by themselves. And what's going on here is Jonathan sees that similarly, David is God's dude. That David is a guy who is after what God is about. I mean, remember what David said about the whole Goliath situation that we brought up last week, right? David said that he experienced God's faithfulness during his time in the field. And that experience of God's faithfulness there is what prompted him to have confidence in God's faithfulness in this battle. Because he had seen God move and work in his past, he knew that in his present, God was going to do the exact same thing. So David goes out and fights Goliath in faith. And this is what Jonathan sees, that David, like Jonathan was previously, trusted in God and that God is apparently with David. But this is not just a game respects game situation, okay? It's not that type of thing. This is something more than admiring his bravery or his courage, something more than his, admiring his ability to sling a rock at a giant, the term here used to describe Jonathan being knit together to David is the same terminology used to describe Jacob's relationship with his son, Benjamin. And what it means is to be one in spirit, to be one in spirit together. To give you probably a simple uh, example or illustration of this, how, have you ever been in a room or in a place where you felt like you were surrounded with people who just did not get you, that you were sort of the odd man out for example, have anybody ever been there? Perhaps maybe a Carolina fan surrounded by a bunch of Clemson fans or vice versa, something like that. And then there's this moment where suddenly out of nowhere, almost like the Red Sea parts and in walks a person wearing the exact same colors that you support, wearing the same colors for your team. And you're just like, my man, that's my guy right there. And you kind of naturally uh, flock over to them and y'all talk or whatever. And, you know, you kind of feel a sense of comfort being surrounded in this relatively hostile place. That's a little bit of what we have going on here, but on a much, much more profound level. Jonathan sees their mutual faith and he sees the hand of the Lord on David. And he essentially internally says, my man, this is my guy. I am with him. Verse 2. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. So Saul sees something in him too. We find out later that he doesn't really see the whole picture, but he knows that there's something special about this David kid. Verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, we're going to come back to this a little bit later, but this is really, really important because this is not something that is really all that culturally accessible to us. As Americans, we tend to view our relationships, what I would describe as contractually. 
We, we tend to approach relationships contractually. Not that we actually sign contracts when we make friends or anything like that, but we tend to view relationships with something of a business or a consumer mindset. We approach them with the category of, if you do your part in this relationship, then I will do my part in this relationship. As long as you provide for me what I'm looking for, then I'll stay in and provide for you. So as long as you're bringing me some benefit, as long as you're meeting my needs or meeting my expectations, then I will continue to see this relationship as worthwhile and I'll keep investing in it. A covenant is a different category of relationship, all right? In a covenant, my needs or my wants come second, all right? My needs or my wants come second. The relationship with the other person comes first, the easiest, excuse me, the easiest example of this uh, should be marriage, but our society has now sort of placed marriage into the contract category as well. I would say that the only relationship where we still kind of intuitively understand covenantal ideas is in the relationship between a parent and a child. We tend to understand that parents should pour out and give to that relationship, even though they're probably never going to get out of it what they actually put in. This is the type of relationship that Jonathan is entering into with David. Verse 4. And Jonathan stripped, his, stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now you might be reading this going, he did what? Uh, what? Uh, Bailey, uh, question. I have, I have a question about what's happening here. Uh, the, actually, the original audience would have had the exact same response too, but for different reasons than why you do, all right? This is another thing that is lost on us due to cultural distance. Here's why this is so important. You have to remember who Jonathan is. You have to remember who Jonathan is to understand what is going on here. Jonathan is Saul's son, He is the king's son. This means he is the prince. He is the heir to the throne. When Saul dies, Jonathan is the one who will rightfully become king. What Jonathan is doing here is he is taking the symbols of his royal position, his future role as king. He takes them off and he gives them to David. It was a symbolic way of denying his own birthright. And this is unheard of. This is mind-blowing. Now, it isn't entirely up to Jonathan, but what he is saying is, as far as it is up to me, the throne is yours. It is not mine. You are God's king. I am not, and I give my right to it to you. He sees that God is doing something in David. Once again, he sees that God is up to something with David and he aligns with God's purposes in and through David's life. This is a sign of just how he is, how committed he is to David and to God. It's a sign of how committed Jonathan really is. Verse five, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over, uh, over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out, uh, came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet, uh, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. I told Lauren yesterday that I thought it would be really, really awesome if she sang something like that when I came home from work. She was less than enthused. We'll just say that. Coincidentally, so was Saul. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. Jealous much? 
And what more can he have but the kingdom? Exactly, Saul. What more can David have but the kingdom? The realization is beginning to dawn on Saul about what makes this David kid so special. Verse 9. And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. So Saul becomes jealous, and it takes him over. If we were using modern language, we might say that Saul is mentally ill. He becomes unstable. And Scripture says there's a spiritual component to this. His jealousy dominates him so much that he loses touch with reality, and he gets to a point now where his only disposition towards David is one of hostility, such that he even tries to kill him. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul sees the Lord is with David, and the Lord is no longer with me, and he just can't handle it. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But this begins basically a long back and forth between David and Saul, and subsequently, Saul and Jonathan. As the story moves forward, Jonathan finds himself in a rather tough position of being mediator between his father and David. Jonathan has been trying to convince Saul that David is an honorable guy and to cool it on this whole, you know, killing stuff. Saul tells Jonathan that he will leave David alone, but secretly he keeps planning to take him out. And eventually the whole thing comes to a head. Jonathan realizes that Saul won't stop trying to kill David, and Saul realizes that Jonathan knows what's up, and the situation just explodes. Flip over to chapter 20, verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. The ESV kind of pretties that language up, but you can read between the lines. This is Hebrew potty mouth, okay? That's what's, that's what's happening right here. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. He's like, don't you get it, dummy? If David lives, you won't be king. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. But of course, Jonathan does get it, and he knows that is, David is God's guy, and he is aligning himself with God's purpose, purposes, because since David is God's guy, David is also Jonathan's guy. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Saul throws his spear at Jonathan. Did you catch that? How did Saul come after David earlier? His spear. Jonathan so identifies with David that the threat, the danger, the obstacle in David's life has now become his own. And this is what happens in real friendship, right? When you're really friends with someone, their problems become your problems, don't they? Their pain becomes your pain. Their danger, their enemy, their fill-in-the-blank, in part, becomes your own. And this is a very tragic moment for Jonathan. His fidelity to David and God's purpose is beginning to cost him his relationship with his dad. And he knows that this also means bad things for his friend. You've ever, have you ever been so upset for your friend that you couldn't eat? This is where Jonathan is at for David. Verse 35. 
In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. Now, what we skipped over in the previous parts of chapter 20 was that David and Jonathan made up something of a code by which, to basically, by which basically Jonathan would tell David whether or not Saul was still after him to kill him. And this appointment is where Jonathan is supposed to send the code to David to let David know what's up. Verse 36. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. David bowing three times here in the ancient Near East was about total and complete deference. To repeat something three times was the highest of superlatives. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. What is happening here is David is realizing, David knows everything that Jonathan has lost because of him. David knows the price that Jonathan is having to pay for being his friend. Think if your best friend lost everything, uh, everything in their life because of you. That's what David is experiencing here because they refuse to turn their back on you, because Jonathan refused to turn his back on David. And the sacrifice that Jonathan is making is not lost on David here. Verse 42. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. He says, Go in peace, man. Go in peace. No matter what disposition my dad takes towards you, God is going to be between us and our kids forever. That, while everything else might change, that's not changing. He sees David's pain. I mean, put yourself in David's shoes for a minute. You know Jonathan is your boy. You know he's had your back. You've seen his commitment. And now you see that you are putting him at risk. If we're honest, you would probably be thinking, you know what, it's not worth it. I'll just not be king, man. I just, I won't do this. Like, I'll just back out. You be king. You'll get your life. I'll be okay. Things will be fine, right? And Jonathan's all, listen, David, we'll have none of that. That's not, what, that's not what's gonna happen here. God's got us. So you go on and get out of here. Get to some place that God can keep you safe until the time is right. And so David leaves and spends the next portion of his life being chased by Saul he goes from hideaway to hideaway to avoid being hunted down and killed. He doesn't see Jonathan after this for quite some time. But if we fast forward just a little bit more, we come to the next and last time that John, David and Jonathan see each other. David is staring down Saul's forces. He's kind of got his back against the wall. He doesn't want to kill Saul because he knows that while Saul is still alive, he's still God's anointed king or appointed king. But he's also trapped, and he doesn't know how God's plan is going to work out. He doesn't know how God is going to deliver him from this. And so Jonathan comes to him. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 23. David saw, in verse 15, it reads, David saw, saw that Saul had come, to seek, come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. 
You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Jonathan comes to David when his back is against the wall to encourage him, to build him up, to remind him of what is true and and the promises that God has made, and that God is going to deliver on those promises. He essentially says, don't be discouraged with the way things look right now. God is going to do exactly what he said he would do. Keep your head up, bro. God has got this. And don't we all need a voice like that in our lives, right? Like, don't we all need someone who says these things to us? And this is really the last interaction we get in Scripture of David and Jonathan. The next we hear of Jonathan is that he's dying in battle at his father's side. He refused to turn his back on either David or his father, and it cost him his life. But I think what we do have here with Jonathan is a beautiful picture of the gift of a friend. What a friend is meant to be in our lives. Now, when I read over what happened to them and how they interacted, and there's more that we don't have time to read, but it, it stirs something up in me, and it might stir something up in you as well. It reminds me of what I consider to be the greatest friendship in all of cinematic history, the friendship between Mr. Frodo and Samwise Gamgee. Anybody with me? Yes, a few of you. I got one. I see that hand. We're good. All right. Anyway, listen, uh, so Andrew brought up Lord of the Rings in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, and it kind of sent me on this tirade of watching all three movies. Like, I just had to, like, sit and intake the whole thing. And so I recently rewatched the entire trilogy, and I hit that moment at the end of Return of the King where the burden of the ring becomes too much for Frodo, and he collapses at the base of Mount Doom. And Samwise cradles Frodo in his arms as Frodo tells him that all he can experience right now is the coldness and the darkness and the pain of the burden of the ring. And Sam Sam says to him, then let's be rid of it forever. Come on, Mr. Frodo. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. And I'm sitting here on my couch in my den, just through tears going, I need somebody to carry me. I need this in my life. And what's funny is, man, I have great friends, right? Like I've got a ton of people who I know would do this for me, but it was just something about in that moment that it just resonated with me. It's like, man, we need friends like this. And I thought about showing you that clip, but I realized that the impact of it, to really have the impact of it, you needed to watch all the movies. And I thought nine hours might be a little bit too much considering you already think I preach too long as it is. So just decided to pass it. But, but the point is, is that when we see things like that and when we read this story, there's this thing that aches inside of us that goes, yeah, yeah, that, that's a friend. That's what friendship is supposed to be. There's this thing in us that aches for relationships like this. And so what I want to do is I want to draw out some implications of this story for us and what this means for us. And the first is simply what I just said. First thing that I want to draw out for us is that, listen, you need friends. Okay. I just want to put that out there for you. You need friends. And that might sound really, really simple, but it's true. You were made for relationships with other people. You and I are made in the image of God, a God who is eternally existent as three persons, a God who by very nature exists in relationship. It's at his very essence. In the creation narrative, as God is making everything, he calls it all good except for one thing. There's one thing he looks at and says, that is not good. And that thing is that man is alone. It's the only thing he says is not good because the reality of it is is that if you are a human being, which I assume all of us in the room are, 
You were made for relationship. You were made to connect and have friendship with other human beings. I love the way the African church father, Augustine, puts it. He said, in this world, two things are essential. A healthy life and friendship. God created humans so that they might exist and live. This is life. But they are not to remain solitary. There must be friendship. We hit on this all the time. It's something that we're pretty big on here. We say, uh, if you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that when we talk about this, we believe that the call to follow Jesus is the call to follow Jesus together, that we are meant to be a community with one another, and that the way we relate to one another is actually the strongest apologetic for Jesus to our world, that one of the greatest displays of Jesus' restorative work in the gospel is how he restores us to friendship with one another how he restores us to right relationship with each other. And what I just want to put out for you quickly this morning is just that here's what this means, that if you're lonely, that doesn't necessarily mean that something is wrong with you. That doesn't mean that something is wrong with you. you are, it means you're made for relationships because God is relational. If you feel like you don't have a, uh, enough close friends, that is not necessarily a sign of your imperfection. It's a sign that you are made in God's image. Now, you might have unrealistic expectations of what a close friend is, and you might have unrealistic expectations for what an unlonely life might be. But the point is, is that if you think you don't need friends, you are wrong. If you don't need friends, then you are not like God because God made you to need friends. But let me add this. When I say friends, I am not talking about the guys that you work out with where the topic of your conversation is strictly limited to routines and proteins, all right? Like that's not the type of relationship I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the moms that you just see on the playground that you swap stories about your children with. It's not that those are bad, all right? But I consider those to be more acquaintances than the depiction of friendship we see in the scriptures. When I'm talking about friendship, I'm talking about the type of relationship that we see between Jonathan and David. Those other relationships, they certainly can turn into friendships, but they aren't what I mean when I say friend. And so when I say friend, here's what I mean, that a friend is someone who knows the real you, that you need people in your life who know the real you. Friendship is where you know and are known. A friend is someone you let your guard down with, all right? Not someone that you dress up for, not someone that you put on a face for or anything like that. A friend is somebody that you can think out loud with, that you can run the risk of saying something stupid in front of. That's what a real friend is. A friend is someone who is not a mystery to you, not someone you can't figure out or understand why they do things a certain way or think a certain way, because a friend is someone that you really know and are really known by. A friend is someone that you experience life's ups and downs with. When something good happens, you want to let them know. When something bad happens, you want them there to talk about it. A friend is a person you go to when your dad is trying to kill you or the one you need to see when, you're, when you've been hiding in a cave for several days on end. And a friend is someone who builds you up with the truth. And this is really, really important. A real friend is someone who builds you up with the truth. A real friend encourages you and points you to God and what is true, even if you don't want to hear it. Friendship is the relationship in your life where the person will tell you the truth 
even if they know it will cost them, even if they know you might hold it against them, even if they know it might cost them your friendship, because ultimately a real friend is the one who wants the best for you no matter what, because they are primarily committed to God's purposes in your life over and above their own self-interest or your approval or anything else. And the reason I bring this up, and I say this to you quite often, is because most often in life, we don't really want friends, we want fans, right? We want yes men who are just there to affirm and approve of anything we think, say, or do. But that is not a real friend. A real friend will tell you the truth because they care about you. A fan is not a biblical view of friendship. Proverbs 18, 24 really summarizes what, we, summarizes what we see happening here with Jonathan and David and what we're aiming for. And this is from the NIV. It says, one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A friend, a real friend is like a brother. A real friend is all of these things that we have mentioned. And real friends are what you really need. And it might be worth taking some assessment this morning. It might be worth asking some questions of ourselves and of our relationships. Do you have any real friends? Do you? Do you have people who love you and know you in these ways? Have you surrounded yourself with people who will speak the truth into your life or just people who will tell you what you want to hear? Do you have real friends? Maybe a riskier question is to ask, are you a real friend? To the people in your life, is this how you approach them? My assumption is that your answer to either one or both of those questions is probably not. Probably not. And so what does it take to cultivate friendships like the ones we see here? What made the friendship between Jonathan and David? And what can that tell us makes our friendships with one another? Here's the first thing I have for us. It's that real friendship is built by commitment. Real friendship is built through commitment. The defining thing about Jonathan and David's friendship was that it was covenantal in nature. Most people know you and want to know you because you are useful to them, all right? This is part of the contractual nature of how we approach relationships. And most of the people that you know, you know because they are useful to you. Most of your companions, your associates, most of the people you know, you know why you know them? You know them because they are useful to you. They, you feel like they add something to your life. Some of them are useful for having a good time. Some of them are useful for making you feel better about yourself. Some of them are useful for meeting other people. Some of them are useful for getting things done. But the truth of the matter is, is that true friendship cannot thrive when it only serves a utilitarian purpose. Because what happens when the bottom drops out, right? What happens when the bottom drops out? What happens when life starts to collapse? What happens when you or they stop being useful? I mean, consider David and Jonathan for just a moment. I mean, how was this relationship useful or advantageous for either one of them? It really wasn't. All it really did was put them in danger. What happens when, that, when we come to relationships and we only think they're useful? What happens when they cease being useful? Oh, I don't know. We, we just drifted apart. We just don't talk all that much. You know, they, they had some things going on, and I told them to call me if they need me, but, you know, they, they never really call. And then you never see them for years. 
But a real friend is the friend who is there. Because a real friend hasn't made you a means to an end, but an end in and of yourself. The person you can count on, the person you know you can absolutely rely on if your life falls apart, that's a friend. And so I want to say a couple of things on this point, a couple of things that I think specifically we need to hear. The first is this. What we are prone to do when we read texts like this and when we hear sermons like this is we are prone to weaponize this content towards the people in our life, okay? We'll show up to Life Group this week pointing fingers through tears saying, you're not a Jonathan and you're not a Jonathan and we'll feel very justified in that whole thing. And I I just want to tell you, that would be a mistake. Like, that, that would be a mistake. First of all, you're probably not all that much of a David either. So let's not be so quick to pull that trigger, okay? Let's just not go there so fast. And it's probably true that your friendships are not as good as they could be or even should be. But the thing is, is you can't control that. You can't control how other people relate to you. But what you can control is your commitment to them. You can't control whether or not somebody is committed to you. Jonathan couldn't control whether or not David was going to be committed to him. But the one thing that Jonathan could control was his commitment to David. And generally speaking, those who are committed to being good friends are the ones who usually find good friends in return. Secondly, not to step on toes, but kind of to step on toes, some of us are just way too unreliable to have meaningful friendships. Let me just say that. Some of us are just far too unreliable and too inconsistent to be a true friend to others or to have true friends in return. We never know what we're going to get from you. One month you're here and the next month you're gone. One month you're here and we're encouraging each other, finding ways to share life. And the next month we just haven't heard from you. You're off doing something else with someone else and no one's heard from you. Totally unavailable. And we'd help you if you needed it, but we don't know when you do because you keep us at arm's length. Some of you just rotate friends. This season, it's this person or that group. Next season, it's somewhere else. And if your defining drive is to make your, mar- is to make your way or make your mark or make your living or gain your place, get ahead, whatever it may be, you're going to struggle with good friends. If you never commit to a group of people and just say, hey, I'm in here, you will always find friendship slipping through your fingers because friendship is developed. It is cultivated where commitment is present. I mean, think about if David and Jonathan just said, okay, you go do you, bro, and I'll go do me. Their friendship would have never thrived because commitment was at the core. And so it begs the question for us, are you just a friend when it's convenient? Are you just a friend to the people in your life when it's easy? Are you just a friend when there's no conflict and everybody's just hunky-dory and things are getting along? Are you just a friend when the person is a friend to you? Is your friendship dictated by whether or not that person is being generous with their friendship towards you? Do you show up? Are you present in people's pain? Are you present in their joy? Do you weep with, cry with, laugh with people, or do you just keep people at arm's length? If you do, you will never have meaningful friendships like what we see here. And so some of you need to hear me say this, say this this morning. Real friendship is going to cost you. Real friendship is going to cost you. It's going to cost you time, time you could be spending networking with other people to help you get ahead, It's going to cost you energy, energy you could spend on a litany of other things that you enjoy doing, right? 
energy you could spend on pursuing your own dreams forward or whatever it may be. But real friendship will cost you. It costs Jonathan his crown, his peace at home, and eventually his life. And it will cost you too. I'll say it a different way. If your greatest goal is to protect yourself from pain, then you will never have true friends. You will never have true friends. Because the only way to have true friends is to allow yourself, to open up yourself to the possibility of being hurt by them and because of them. Over time, one of the challenges of being a good friend is trying to overcome the pain that comes with other people failing to be a good friend to you. There will be times in your life where it turns out that you have been more committed to a friendship with someone than they were committed to you. And the very natural impulse in those moments is to protect yourself from being hurt like that again. No one wants to willingly put themselves in a position for that. And so what we tend to do when we hit those moments is just to say, hey, you know what? I'm done. I'm just going to kind of keep everybody out here now. I'm not going to open myself up like that again. But we would do that to our own peril. But it does beg the question for us, though, right, of like, okay, I get it. Friendship takes commitment. It's going to take me opening up my life. It's going to take, take me saying, hey, I'm with you no matter what I'm in. But that's a lot easier said than done, right? Like, how do we do that? Especially, how do we do that with people that we have nothing in common with? How do we do that with people that, upon first glance, we really don't like all that much, Right? How do we do that with people who often frustrate us or hurt us? How can real friendship be cultivated in these difficult spaces? Here's the answer. Commitment to friends happens when we are committed to something greater than friends. A better way to say it, perhaps, is that real friendship happens when it's about more than friendship. Here's the thing. For all of the talk in this text about friendship... In some respects, what the author of Samuel is revealing here is about something much, much bigger than friendship. Friendship is the avenue in which we see it displayed, but something much bigger going on. In truth, Jonathan is actually an example to us of what discipleship looks like. Jonathan is actually an example to us of what it means to follow God, to follow Christ with our lives, of what it looks like to align ourselves with his purposes over and above everything else. What initially, draw, what, what initially draws Jonathan to David? It's not a trick question. It's the work, that God, the work of God that he sees in his life. What does he over and over again emphasize is between the two of them, God and his promises. What drives Jonathan's friendship with David? Jonathan's own faith in God and what God is doing in the world. You see, the truth is, is all friendships require some sort of foundation, all of them, regardless of what they are. Uh, a, past, a favorite pastor of mine, a guy named Tim Keller, says it this way. He says, friends come with what you're in love with. They happen with people who are most in love with the same thing that you're in love with. As a result of that, this is one of the reasons why a lot of people have very few friends. He says, if you want nothing but approval, if you want nothing but friends, you'll never have friends because friendship is always about something besides friends. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, actually says it a bit more sharply. You're not going to like this. He says, this is why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something else besides friends. Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, 
Where the truthful answer to the question, do you see the same truth, would be, I see nothing and I don't care about the truth. I only want a friend. No real friendship can arise. There would be nothing for the friendship to be about. Those who have nothing can share nothing. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. And this is something that we all should have learned on the playground when we were young, right? You make friends on the playground when you say, hey, let's go do this thing together. Hey, let's go play tag. Hey, let's go play knockout, which is a basketball game for those of you who didn't have a childhood. All right. Sorry. That was a little bit too sharp. Sorry. My bad. That's on me. That's on me. It was not, it was not on my notes for what it's worth. Uh, this is also why it's generally easier for us to form relationships around hobbies and special interests, right? Like, oh, you like cycling? Me too. Me too. Oh, you pull for that team? Me too. Me too. But while affinity can certainly, uh, can certainly and easily bring people together, it's not deep enough to root or anchor friendship for the long haul. Affinities change. Life stages shift. And when friendship is based off of those things, friendship tends to come and go. But what we see here with David and Jonathan is that their friendship is actually an incredibly unlikely friendship. Jonathan is royalty and David is a shepherd. Jonathan was the heir to the throne, but David was his replacement, or you could say his competitor. In some respects, they should have been enemies. Their friendship is not based off of common interest. It wasn't like, hey, dude, you like killing Philistines? Me too. This is great. Let's be bros. It was not that kind of situation. There are all sorts of reasons why Jonathan would have never been friends with David to begin with. But God unites them. He takes two different people and he brings them together. And what I want you to see this morning is that aligning yourself with God's purposes in the world will always lead you to align yourself with God's purposes in others. I'm going to say that one more time so you get it. Aligning yourself with God's purposes in the world will always lead you to align yourself with God's purposes in others. It will always lead you to pursuing and extending friendship to those around you. And the truth is, is that this is the secret sauce of Christian friendship. There is no one who is off limits. There is no one for whom it is impossible for you to be their friend or for them to be yours. There is no one where friendship can't possibly be formed. The secret sauce of Christian friendship is not shared affinity, not shared life stage, not proximity, not similar Myers-Briggs or Enneagram number or whatever it may be. Those things are good. They can even be helpful but they are not what ultimately forges quality friendships. God forges quality friendships. And this is important for you because some of us are so convinced that we can't be friends with people who aren't exactly like us, who aren't in the same position as we are, who aren't in the same life stage as we are, or who don't meet certain sets of criteria that we, in our minds, we believe we need to have a good friend. People who don't share our interests or our parenting style or the same taste in humor. And we're convinced that we can't be friends with people who fail us or cause us pain, and we can't be committed to them if they don't hold up their end of the bargain. But that is simply not true. If you are a believer in Jesus, that is not true for you. 
this weekend, Lauren and I were actually talking a good bit about, about friendship because obviously we knew this sermon was coming up. And she told me I could share a little bit of her experience when we first planted our church. Uh, Lauren is a walk deeply and walk a long time with type friend builder. And I am a little bit more of a everything is awesome type friend builder. You know, I'm like, I'm like Oprah with my friendships. You get a friendship, you get a friendship, everybody gets a friendship, right? Lauren and I are just wired differently on that front. She's high I introvert, I'm high E extrovert. It leads to a lot of fun times in our household. It's great. Uh, but we, we just make and build friends differently. And so before we came out here and planted, uh, we were a part of a really strong friend group that we had been walking with. Lauren specifically had been walking with for years. And, and when we moved out here, initially she felt pretty lonely. I mean, just, just kind of convinced that she'd never have any real friends again. She didn't really easily connect with the folks who were around her now, all the new people in her life. She felt like our personalities are different. Our interests are way different. And she, there were times where she just told me, like, I just, I just feel lonely. I think I'm just going to be lonely for the long haul. But this weekend she told me, you know, you know what happened is, is I eventually realized, the Spirit kind of brought to my mind that, you know, at the end of the day, God is the one who put me here. And he put me here to love and care for the people around me. And I had to learn to just trust him with my relationship needs. And what I found when I stopped being so concerned with finding friendship was that what I had been looking for was actually right underneath my nose the whole time. When I stopped making finding friendship my aim, but giving friendship my aim, I found that it was there the whole time. And the same is true for us. The same would be true for you. But the reality of it is, is you will have imperfect friends. We will have friends who let us down, friends who aren't always there, friends who for one reason or another leave. And I want to encourage you with this final thing this morning. The same was true for Jonathan and David. Jonathan leaves David and goes home in 1 Samuel 23. It's the last time that they see each other and Jonathan afterwards dies alongside his father in battle. He is not the ultimate presence that David needs. For all of his promises to David, there was one he could not keep. He could not promise David that he would be with him forever to the end of, of the age. But at the end of the day, that is actually what we need. We need a friend who will always be with us forever. Ultimately, we need an eternal friend. And friends, this is exactly what Jesus has come to give you. In John 15, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. I don't call you servants, I call you friends. Jesus is your eternal friend. Jesus is a friend to you even when it cost him. In fact, it did cost him his life to be your friend. Jesus, like Jonathan, endured the wrath of his father reserved for you. Jesus set aside his kingdom privileges, his divine rights as the eternal son of God, and he set them aside to humble himself to a death on the cross for you. He gives up his kingdom so you can receive his inheritance. This is the kind of friend you truly need. Someone who gets you, who really knows you, who knows what you're thinking and feeling intimately, maybe even better than you yourself know it. Someone who is always for you, not just with you some of the time, but someone who is there constantly. You need a friend who can weep with, you can weep with, and whom you can dance with. Someone who experiences your ups and downs as though they were their own. You need a friend that is infinite. You need a friend that, can go, that you can go to about anything at any time and is always available to you. You need a friend who is willing to overcome 
all the difficulties of being your friend and never stops pursuing you in the midst of it. You need a friend who will never leave you, who will never forsake you, never let you down. You need friendship with Jesus. Joseph Scriven was an Irish-born Christian and poet living in Canada in the mid-19th century. And while he was there, he got word that his mother back in Ireland had gotten very sick and was feeling very alone. And, you know, during this time in uh, human history, travel was incredibly difficult then, and he knew he wouldn't make it back to her to be with her in time. And so drawing upon his own pain and his own life from losing a fiance uh, and his sadness at being unable to be with his mother when she died, he actually wrote her a poem uh, in an effort to comfort his mom. And the poem eventually became a hymn that Christians have sung for over 150 years since. This is what he wrote to his mom. He says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what a peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. And that invitation is true for you today as well. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. And so this is where we're going to end, and I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to sing some songs. Uh, as always, we like to respond as a family by taking communion together. And listen, this is, this is what I want to encourage us when it comes to communion. We are warned throughout the scriptures that if something is not right in our relationships with each other, let's make it right and then go to the table. And so I just want to ask you, you know, real quickly, is, is there a friendship in your life in need of repair? Before we take the meal together this morning, let's repair it. Let's repair it. Let's reconcile and deal with it first. And then I just want to ask you, are you resting in your friendship with Jesus? Set him apart as the friend you rely on to meet your needs so that you can go be a friend to others. And as you go to the table this morning, recognize that this bread and this wine is a symbol to you of his friendship to you, that he willingly laid down his life on your behalf, that he would no longer call you servant, but call you friend. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you uh, that you are our great friend. Thank you that you are the one who really does satisfy our relational needs and that you have come to us and come for us, that you are the true and better Jonathan in our lives. God, I pray that you would help us to see that, that you would help us to recognize that our first, our need for you as our friend, and then secondarily, our need for one another, to have genuine friendship with one another. God, I pray that you would cultivate in us the desire and the spirit to commit to the people in our lives, to pursue friendship, knowing that if we are aligning ourselves with you, we can be aligned with what's going on with them, that you would empower that and that you would create us into the community of love that you call your church to be. We thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. And it's your name we pray, amen.